ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. And the Aboriginal learner and the Aboriginal child, they don't generally get their education needs met from the Aboriginal school or the Aboriginal hospital. They go to the dominant hospital and the dominant school with predominantly non-Indigenous workforce. We need to close the gap in practice. Practice is where the problem is for me. You need to weave into the knowledge loom that was before you. The ancient, as well as the Aboriginal research standpoint, as well as the non-Indigenous archive. Truth, rights and response. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Improving health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has been a long-term goal of successive governments and community organisations. But what are the barriers to adequate health care? Is systemic racism preventing First Nations people from receiving medical treatment? A report investigating First Nations patients in Queensland found Indigenous people are nearly three times more likely to be discharged from hospital against medical advice and two times more likely to avoid or delay specialist appointments because of the cost of travel and accommodation. These are common experiences for First Nations people around the world. The Lowitcher International Indigenous Health and Wellbeing Conference, held earlier this year in Cairns, looked at the reasons why. Indigenous health experts from New Zealand, Canada and the United States gathered to share knowledge and research aimed at improving the health and well-being of First Nations people and communities. Professor Chelsea Wadigo is an Indigenous health professor at the Queensland University of Technology. The Mullinjari and South Sea Islander woman used her keynote address to outline the challenges of achieving equity and equality for First Nations people in the Queensland health sector. Abolition is not a radical political project. It's an important intellectual one that should concern those of us who claim to be concerned with the quality of life of our people. And good ways, we can learn more from the abolitionist than we can the epidemiologist about quality of life. For visitors here, I want to remind you that this is the deep north where colonialism runs rampant in the most explicit of ways. As visitors to this place and acknowledging country, we must recognise what is happening in this place to our people, our children, women and men. So as you tweet or take selfies, please take a moment to also speak of the fight that's taking place here. I want to acknowledge the ongoing black resistance in this place. When you look at the history books or the yarns from mob, the resistance here was and always will be strong. As we think about sovereignty as a sub-theme, it's worth giving consideration to the Udinji sovereign movement. Blackfellas are innovating in all kinds of ways in exercising of sovereignty unceded that we frequently speak of in our acknowledgements, but don't always speak to and how it's embodied and enacted every day, even if it's in ways that we may not have imagined. It is important that we pause to think through these moments and movements beyond the narrow perimeters imagined by our employers that may have funded our ability to be here. Black gatherings like this are vital to our movement, particularly in the aftermath of the abolition of ADSIC, which provided an infrastructure for regional and national Indigenous organising and leadership 
that was elected by us. It is often in the in-between spaces of places like this, the yarns, the laughs, the strategizing, organizing and connecting that will be of more service to our struggle than the five, 15 or 25 minutes that we've been allotted to speak to or at each other. So this morning, I wanna use my time to speak to the souls of blackfellas. Those of you who find yourself working in health because you have a stubborn insistence on survival in the oldest living culture in the world kind of way, not the nine to five closing the gap kind of way. So in returning to this place, the state of so-called Queensland, we currently have the state applauding itself for its First Nations health equity framework. Only settlers would have the audacity to claim credit for being the solution to the problems they've caused. Unsurprisingly, it was in this place that the first audit of institutional racism took place. And I wish to acknowledge the efforts of Yudinji woman, Professor Henrietta Mari, who was instrumental in the development of the first audit of Cairns and Hinterland Hospital and Health Service. This tool would be used to conduct a statewide audit of Queensland's hospital and health services. And the statewide audit found that all of the 16 hospital and health services rated in the very high to extremely high levels of institutional racism. In fact, 10 out of the 16 were extremely high. It would prompt the legislative reforms passed by the Queensland Parliament in 2020, which requires hospitals and health services to co-develop and co-implement health equity strategies, which embed the objective of eliminating institutional racism within a legal framework. While such moves are commendable, I think we should hold the applause. The health equity strategies definitely make for interesting reading. We can see in their strategies, which claim to be eliminating institutional racism, how pitiful their understanding of the concept is. And I don't think it's an oversight on the part of the state, but by design. The strategies for supposedly eliminating institutional racism resemble settler feels about what racism is, rather than any real commitment to combat the racial violence that our people experience as either clients or as colleagues. The strategies largely relate to a review of policies and procedures not to do away with institutional racism, but just to deal with racial complaint. So they effectively reduce structural racism to one of interpersonal instances. There is only one health service district, Children's Health Queensland, and shout out to Sister Angela Young for your leadership, which explicitly states that they will dismantle structures, policies, and processes that disadvantage Indigenous peoples. Many other health service districts avoid dealing with racism altogether, and instead speak of culture, cultural capability, cultural support, and promotion of cultural events. Gold Coast Health Service is particularly problematic as they went so far as to rename the KPI of eliminating institutional racism to that of cultural safety. And contained within that is reference to, and I quote, discrimination, lateral violence, institutional racism, and unconscious bias. You can see how they made institutional racism an act of settler innocence via unconscious bias, while pathologizing black bullets by the inclusion of lateral violence every time racism is mentioned. One of my favorite Instagram accounts is loving me after we. Now loving me after we deals with the toxic relationship drama that we find ourselves in, typically as a result of trauma. And there's nothing more traumatic than colonization that we may have forgotten the possibilities of foregrounding sovereignty, accepting equity as the strategy and solution, 
is a consequence of the gaslighting that colonisers have subjected us to. They will insist that sovereignty is impractical, that our efforts are too radical. They will call you crazy, forcing you to question your sanity to the point you trust them more than you do yourself or your people. So let's work through these red flags of equity, shall we? Our very presence through the lens of equity reduces us to an ethnic group, or acronym. The erasure of nations in favour of ethnicities that they've conceived the parameters for membership of is foundational in every sense of the word to equity and the settler colonial project itself. Via equity, we are deemed statistically insignificant. But if we start with sovereignty, we don't accept that label. And look, if he only knows you as an ethnic other or an acronym and not via your nation, you need to let him go. He doesn't even know you. How can he truly appreciate who you are? Though this is more than just a label. It is about relationships. Via equity, we are forced into a relationship of power in which we are known by our deficit and their supposed superiority. They have constructed the racialised category that is the Aborigine, and it is they who've made real their claims of our inferiority. Through equity, we are only known as a population that possesses problems. Through this relationship, we are only able to know ourselves as less than them, and that has always been the basis of abusive relationships with the coloniser. Their very presence in this place was predicated upon the notion that we are the problem that they are to solve by assimilation, eradication or elimination. Equity is an agenda of erasure and there's a comfortability with the supposed inevitability of our demise. There is no urgency about the deaths of Indigenous men, women and children, just as there is no urgency surrounding over a decade-long policy failure that has closed the gap. They didn't change the failed strategy, they just refreshed the targets by which they would be measured. If the relationship you're in requires you to play small, then sis, you need to leave now. Equity calls us to speak of our death, not of our lives. But our life worlds matter. They only matter in the equity imagination for our deviant health behaviours to prove that we just don't know what's good for us or that we don't care about our health, or at least not as much as they do. If you must be known only as ill rather than well, you've got to know that he is not good for you. We are the oldest living culture on the planet. Why should we settle for equity, which only sees us via X years left life expectancy. Why would we want to define ourselves by how we deviate from whiteness, as though whiteness is the measure of wellness? Well, how? Still here is an acute catchphrase. It's the expression of a sovereignty unseated. How could that not be the best starting point for a relationship? Right now, we have a choice. We can choose equity, which privileges white innocence and black deviance as the explanation for our circumstances, or we can speak the truth, not just about white violence, but the truth about black power. Equity precludes us from the latter, and as such, equity is the concession. To choose sovereignty by its very definition deals with power, ours. It is embodied by us. It is something they know not of, but it is in our knowing that we must choose to fight. And when we stand in our power, individually and collectively, we realise that the role of advisor, cultural or otherwise, is beneath us. We are not here to accessorise white knowing, white innocence or white supremacy. We are ancestors and architects of a black humanity that offers a way of being in this world that they should be aspiring to. When we stand in our sovereignty, our strategy is no longer one of appeal. 
of being the exception, the role model, the leader, we recognise the power of being the wrong kind of black. Not for us individually, materially, but politically, ideologically and ancestrally. I was raised in a home where I was told that I was never to bow my head to them. We cannot forget the place and where we come from, the stories that were passed on to us to ensure our survival. Those stories are ours and we must stand in them. Because their stories, their account of things, is and was the lie. It is no coincidence that my decision to break up with equity was made possible through a relationship with Zenith Kes Peoples. I wish to acknowledge the leadership of Uncle Philip Mills, Uncle Sam Mills, Auntie Yoko Mills, Uncle Poi Pensio, Hilda Wapau, Melita Abendigo. It was from these people that I would understand sovereignty in a different kind of way and about a different kind of caring on our terms of reference. So I want to thank you for making health sovereignty more real for me. In thinking about how you might break up with equity and start with sovereignty, I encourage you to attend the UMI Project workshop session this afternoon at 2.40pm, because this isn't just words. There is action taking place right now in rejecting equity over sovereignty. To stand in sovereignty means to not settle for less. We are entering to relationships based on remembering who we are. We are not bowing our heads. We're not here for revenge. We just want more than what's on offer for our people. To stand in sovereignty is a place of freedom. As Uncle Philip says, it demands that we break the shackles of colonialism to step out of the shadows. And yeah, maybe choose violence. Be that bitch. Be cast as a caricature. Be that killjoy, that black speed bump. Be all of that and then some. And add a little razzle-dazzle. Leave that job, that research team, and yeah, leave your man too. That's Chelsea Wadigo, Professor of Indigenous Health at the Queensland University of Technology. She was speaking at the Lowitcher International Indigenous Health Conference held earlier this year in Cairns. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. Earlier this year, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation welcomed extra funding to improve health infrastructure within Indigenous communities. It came at a time when cancer had overtaken cardiovascular disease as the major cause of death for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Coming up, why it's important to create culturally safe healthcare and referral pathways for First Nations people. First, though, some music from Troy Cassadaly. I grew up is followed close wherever I may be. I feel the wind across my face and touch it with my hand. No matter what your bloodlines, we belong to this land. Yeah. 
could be white But come and join the choir This feeling in your belly Means you're welcome at this fire So many generations Between us we can trace Flowing like a river Down to our dreaming place Back on country Queensland patch of dirt King Street in Newtown Where they tucked away the hurt Ancient stories, different worlds Of love, hate and fear The single dream how many tribes All come together here Back on country That was country music legend Troy Cassadaly with his song Back on Country. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. 
Earlier this year, Cairns played host to the annual Lowitcher International Indigenous Health and Wellbeing Conference. The event attracted international leaders, researchers, health professionals and community representatives who shared their expertise, ideas and community-led research to improve Indigenous health and wellbeing. Professor Lester Irabinarigny is a Narunga, Ghana and Naranjeri man from South Australia. He is a distinguished and highly regarded Aboriginal educationalist and researcher known for advancing First Nations education. Before we hear from Professor Rigney, distinguished Professor Linda Tuiwai-Smith from Aotearoa, New Zealand, is an internationally accomplished scholar and researcher whose work has been influential around Maori education and health. She used her address to reflect on the resilience and impact of Indigenous researchers. To us in Aotearoa, our rights are bound in Te Tiriti or Waitangi. We see the Tiriti as part, a fundamental structural part of the solution. We see it positively as part of the solution to our past. But it's not an abstract idea. It's not a vision, if you like, of we will have these rights one day. We have to think ourselves into having those rights now, into exercising those rights, and knowing what it means to walk in the mana of our ancestors who signed Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Once again, in that exercise of rights, words matter. I see in our culture solutions to many of the problems that actually colonisers have caused. But I also see in our culture things that ideally should be well, but are not well. But we also have to question the role that power plays within our own culture, the way that gender works, the way that power works, the way that class works the way that location works. Power is always going to accompany people, all right? Doesn't matter. It's not a white thing. We have power too. And power is exercised whenever people are together. So it's always a matter of navigating, negotiating, and understanding the relations of power. I want to move on now to talk about the future of research. It's really cool to all be doing research, right? Research is fun. Research is optimistic in a sense. And there, there's a place in research for everyone who's curious about anything. In one way, we've sort of gained the foothold in methodology we've been able to work with the structures and forms, uh, with the conventions, if you like, that enable us to sneak our knowledge in, to sneak our language in, to change the format of research. But research in itself is not the end point, right? Research is what we're trying to do, to do things, to do other things. We hear the word transforming. We want research to change something, to change the world, to make life easier, to solve problems, to open up new vistas, 
So we need research to work. And all of you here are workers in that world. But there are also things we know. You don't really need research to actually tell you the answer. We know the answer. So a lot of what we're also doing is just like writing the answer. <laughs> right? That's what half of you are doing, I know. It's like, all right, we've got this big grant, we're going to do such and such, we'll just write the answer here. Because <laughs> we know the answer. But we're having to squeeze what we do into kind of these words, like evidence-based policy, for example, trying to bring our stories together as evidence. And we feel that the truth will create the solution or open the door or convince the powerful that here is the evidence. We did research, we used methods, we wrote about it. Here, read it, sit with it, act upon it. And as you know, that often doesn't happen because as I've learned in my career and those of you my age, there's always another sort of barrier, right? It's up there. And it's not that we don't have the evidence, but it's not international. It's not peer-reviewed or some other thing or some other thing. And so we press on. But I think it's really important as researchers to kind of understand both the possibilities that we can do in research and the limits of research and the time when it's not about research, but actually about acting, about activism, about doing something, about speaking outside the space of research, about working alongside our communities, our politicians, I mean our own politicians, and other people who we know can implement things far more efficiently than what happens in the space of research. So what am I saying about the future of research in my last five minutes? I think we have this sort of moral, ethical, political, social, cultural responsibility uh, in research in terms of elevating what we're doing so that it really does meet the real potential that I think indigenous knowledge and indigenous peoples have to change the world, not just change our world. We can change our world, that's not the issue. Other people are stuffing up the world. Yeah. And I think they have no imagination for what to do about that. All the the power of indigenous knowledges around the world is the power of a different kind of imagination, a different imaginary of the world, of what it can be. Because every indigenous knowledge system has completely different ideas, concepts, strategies, imaginations of what could be. The West is devoid 
of that imagination. It's pretty much run out of ideas. It had run out of those ideas by the 17th century. Because <laughs> the story of Orientalism is the story of the theft of indigenous knowledges around the world. That's the story of Orientalism, of appropriating indigenous knowledge, orientalizing them into the Western archive. That process of colonization has not stopped. But now there's this romantic idea about indigenous knowledge. So we've got two things going on. One, we're revitalizing our knowledge and getting all excited about it because it is genuinely exciting, but we're also having to protect it because other people are excited by it. Other people desire it. And those other people don't desire it for our interests, but for their interests. So I don't think our life as researchers gets easier in the future, is what I'm saying. We have this dual and triple role, and I think it will continue. You know, one of our roles is to strengthen our own knowledge systems, to strengthen and champion our people, even when they're shitty and fall over. Because if we don't champion our people, who will? And we have to champion each other. That's why it's important to meet internationally and globally. So I heard this morning that in the US, the Supreme Court held up the Indigenous Child Welfare Act, Indian Child Welfare Act, which was under threat. So my Facebook was full of Native Americans feeling that they had won something. They are constantly under threat, and so are we, that we have to hold each other up, we have to champion each other, and we have to be aware of what's happening outside our own countries, our own nations, our own jurisdictions. Because a case won across the ocean are arguments that we can use. A case lost across the, across the ocean is a loss for all of us. The other responsibility we have is to continue to guard, to protect, to defend what we have gained. The little steps we might have made in the turn of a policy, in a change of a government, can throw us back decades. And that's why our capacity building is so important. It's not enough to have a few of us. I love seeing all you young people here. To me, that means I should be able to retire. <laughs> and, and some of my colleagues, but you know, I've, I've seen everyone here the last two days talking about Auntie Pat and all our aunties, all your aunties are still working hard. And what is the lesson for you? That you're gonna be working hard. When you're in your 70s, when you're in your 80s, when you're in your 90s. There is no retirement plan in this business of Indigenous research. 
It does get easier. It, it, it's really important for us older ones to not just like occupy all the spaces and take up all the power and be bossy. All right, it is important to step back and to trust that the next generation will do the right thing, will continue the work, will continue to build, will apply the values they've learned, will pull people through the doors, not slam the door on others coming through. So it is good to get to a place where you can watch, where you can bask in the sunshine because others are doing that heavy lifting. And that's what we want, this intergenerational community. We want leaders, but we also want learners. We want our elders, but we need our young. We want people who are theorists, but we want practitioners. We want change makers. We want people who know how our communities tick and talk. We want them to know at a deep level of practice what it means to change the minds of our own people, what it means to lift our own people out of loss and grief and sadness. We want those people on the ground. And our work as researchers, to me, is to help them, to support them. If they need words, give them words. If they need numbers, give them numbers. If they need advocacy, give them advocacy. They need research to back up the practices that they know work. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of the limits of what we do, is that we can't do all of that ourselves. We need people with credibility in our communities. And we need people who do that heavy lifting to have some of that burden taken off them. And research can do that. Our research can do that. As long as we follow the principles and values that I know Indigenous communities have laid out for us. If you aspire to be a great white Western style researcher, good luck to you. But that's not what we need. That's not who we need. We need our people to be our researchers to be our champions, to grow our knowledge, to strengthen our communities, to not only change our world, but to change the world, other worlds that we must interact with. My only final point about the future of research, which is good, is there is a future in research, right? It's always going to be futuristic. There's always knowledge to be gained even from our past, there's always knowledge. And knowledge, to me, empowers us. It inspires us. It should make us feel good about who we are. It should help us be generous to others. It should give us a sense that in a hundred years' time, we'll not only be here and be thriving, but we'll be like way cool. cooler than we currently are.
Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. There's a fall in water table. There's a rise in sea level. There's an exhaustion of natural resources. There's the greatest economic inequality the country has ever seen in its history. The gap between rich and poor are the greatest. Hospitals now are money-making ventures. They are becoming more privatised. The publicness is dying. The democratic rights of our children to access a public education and a public school for we the people is declining at a rapid rate to the point where the privatised public hospital and the privatised public school the loss of the public, the loss of we the people. In these strange times, everything goes back to the notion of anti-plurality. When there is pressure on the economy, there is pressure on plurality. When there is fight for resources, the default position that's normalised is sameness. There is a war over the hospital for plurality. There is the war over the health director's role, the fight between those who want plurality and those who want sameness. When a country, what we call in the theory, has this authoritarian shift. Now, authoritarian shift has a very theoretical background. So how could I explain this authoritarian shift, what I mean by authoritarian shift? Inequality has an architecture, has an atmosphere, and it has a geography. So when we ask the question, what's the purpose of public health, and in whose interest does it serve, we have to remember that when nations shift authoritarianism, like we are seeing in New Zealand and Australia, and across the Pacific, after Trumpism, after Boris in the UK, and what's happening in Australia, when countries begin to make this authoritarian shift directly to jerk to the right, to nationalism, to anti-plurality, you see this in the voice debates. When we see this, we know that when we study inequality, we understand it has an architecture, it has a geography, and you can walk into a public school and a public hospital and feel the inequality as atmosphere. It also has an antiquity and ubiquity. And by this I mean it has a history. And we know that when nation states, like settler societies, shift to the right, we know that this causes harm to plurality. So, what do you do? Well, I'm suggesting that when you see this authoritarian shift that is irresponsible governments and economic growth, whatever the situation, we know that authoritarian shift makes real government's abandonment of the poor. During an authoritarian shift, there's an abandonment of the poor while the rich can take shelter and also have lots of the vaccines first. 
So when Professor Michael Marmot talks about social determinants of history, maybe we need to start to change the discourse. Maybe you, as the early and mid-career researchers, may need to shift the language. In an authoritarian shift, both Linda's work and my work, we begin to try and capture the language and shift the language. So instead of social determinants, we might be wanting to talk about planetary determinants, or we might want to be talking about public determinants, that we have to wrestle and fight with those who want to privatise the public. We might want to wrestle those that are claiming racist opportunities over plural identities. I want to say to you today that inequality has a practice and all of these authoritarian shifts have a cumulative effect and it's not a matter of a crisis that will pass before everything goes back to normal. And that's, your, that's where your research is situated. So when we find these authoritarian shifts, it was just before the Mabo case, when Lowager Institute came into being as a research institute, we had to fight with research methodologies. Linda published her book. We were publishing in the Pacific. We had to fight to get access to the academy. We've pretty much won the research argument for methodologies. And I think you're here to benefit that argument. You don't need to worry about that argument. Yes, it's still ongoing, but I think we need now to start to look at the future of what is the health challenges of the future and today. So when I, when I see authoritarian shift, I go back to the historical record as an academic and I go back and I read, and I just wanted to point to you before I get into my real presentation today, four books that I generally go to and I reread them over and over and over to help me when I see authoritarian shift. And Robin Kelly's work, Your Mama's Dysfunction, when authoritarian shift occurs, generally what happens is the nation state tends to try and look to blame somebody and it's always your mama's dysfunction. Yeah? It looks to blame somebody. And when we do our research, we have to resist these tendencies, these tropes of the nation state to always blame somebody for the economic crisis that they've created. So Your Mama's Dysfunction is a really interesting read and you should have a look at it. The second book that I tend to go to is Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem. Hannah Arendt says the banality of evil. So after the Holocaust, she was fascinated with how did the Holocaust occur? This wasn't just a single event that happened overnight. A, a society was trained into thinking this way and that it was seen as benevolent, that it was in the interest of human beings to do this. Why is it in the interest of human beings for our Prime Minister to spend all of our Australian money on six submarines when health workers' rights and wages are below in the poverty line? It was a Labor government that did that. In South Australia, we have a Labor government that has just passed undebated through the upper house into legislation that if you now demonstrate, you will be fined and imprisoned with the Labor government. So the authoritarian shift is both Labor and Liberal. And we as researchers don't really care who's in power. We just want to know the science. 
The other that's not up here is also Edward Said, the Palestinian struggle of Orientalism. And so I go back how the Oriental is constructed when the administration shift happens. So the abandonment of plurality for sameness happens in the authoritarian shift. And this brings even more complexity to our work. So you can write all the best policies you like, but unless your workforce implements the policy the way that you want to do it, it's about practice. It's about, in, in education in my field, this word we call pedagogy. It's a fancy, fancy Freudian notion, but this notion of pedagogy, my practice. So when I use the word pedagogy, I'm just talking about what is the health workforce's practice and in whose interest does it serve? What is the purpose of public health after invasion? When the Aboriginal child is massacred during invasion, what is the purpose of Australian education? And then what does that mean for training our workforces? Does it have a different purpose to democracy? when you're dealing with the Aboriginal child. So I just want to go back and want to just quickly make a couple of points. I want you to think about this when you're doing your research, because this is the way in which mind mind is working and it's programmed in its DNA. And everything I read and I write, I don't know about you, but when I write, I'm writing it around about, my intellect kicks in somewhere between 2 a.m. in the morning and 6 a.m. I wish it was the other way around. So this is, this is how my mind works and the theory is robust on this. So when I'm writing, I'm thinking about the Aboriginal learner. The Aboriginal child has three identities. So firstly, their identity is Narunga. So this is my language group. You saw my people, my beautiful relations up on stage taking the, the banner for Adelaide. We were all welcoming you to Adelaide. But the child has this identity as Narunga language and they're sovereign. They're sovereign to Pitinjara, Yangurunjara, Edigarinya. Uh, they're sovereign to the Yiriganji. Yiriganji is sovereign from Narunga. So there's the Narunga identity and language. The second is the Aboriginal learner has an Australian sovereignty, an Australian identity. The Australian government has a responsibility to the Aboriginal child. And then there's the sovereign, the, the child who is sovereign. That is, I call them landlords. So the local public hospital is built on their land. So these three identities in my career, I've tried to write into three of those identities. The Narunga child, the Australian child, which Narunga is as a citizen that deserves and expects rights, like all other Australian children. And then there's the sovereign, where the Narunga child, the Maitland Hospital, is built on their land, and they should be paying the rent. So the Narunga sovereign child could say to the school principal, actually, you're on my land and why aren't you teaching my curriculum? I'm landlord here. Whereas the Australian child can go into the public hospital and says, every other child is getting their health needs, why can't I? So we have to be fighting in all of those three and I've tried to write in all of those three and it's really difficult. I'm almost at the end of my career 
And I must say that I've been able to write in the Narunga space, I've written the Narunga native title, which we've been successful, I've written the Narunga Declaration, I've written the Narunga Buldera Agreement. In the Australian, is you'll see um, the next five minutes that I have, I'm going to quickly run through the project and then the sovereign. I've written um, sovereignty documents as well. So what are the 10 big questions of Aboriginal education? So these 10 big questions, this whilst we're down in the small grasses, researchers trying to fix hearing and otitis media, we've also got to be in the helicopter above looking over what our people need in the 10 big questions. There's not one 10 big questions and I think I'm, I'm happy to lead with Loager on what are the 10 big questions for public health going into the next generation, the next decade. And then I've been focusing not on small questions at the moment, but what are the challenges of our time? And I think practice and racism is the challenge of our time. Social determinants, planetary determinants, the issues of our time, humanity, is the issue of our time when we've got AI that can cause human extinction. So in the time that I've left, I'm just going to skim through this back end. So here is the work that I've been doing with the Australian learner, not the sovereign learner and not the Narunga learner, but the Narunga learner in the Australian context where they have citizenry rights. If you take away each of those three identities, which the Aboriginal child has rights in all of those three, you deny them rights. So we have to be working in all of those three spaces, the sovereign, the Australian, and the Narunga child. So here are three big longitudinal projects. Every time I go and begin a research project, I use the five big research archives to theorize what the problem is. The HILDA, H-I-L-D-A, the Housing Income Labor Dynamics Survey. Its archive is 20 years long. And if you're wanting to look at how incomes happen in our community and our families, these are done by really, really strong researchers, black and white. The other longitudinal survey is ELSA, Longitudinal Survey in Australian Youth. If you're wanting to look at what youth is in downtown Broome, look at the ELSA research. ELSIC, Longitudinal Studies in Indigenous Children, which is now to the second or third year in a row we've captured data on Aboriginal fathers. And the census. There's also a really good longitudinal data set by Stephen Kubrick in Western Australia on Aboriginal children. So what we know about children around the world comes from studies that are across the Northern Hemisphere. The studies that are used in the Northern Hemisphere on 10% of the world population of children are then used to make decisions about what happens in the Southern Hemisphere for 90% of the world children's population. We don't know much about the Maasai children. We don't know much about the Irukandji children and how they're raised and what their aspirations and needs are. That's why you're important. That's why you're here, and that's why we have so much love and belief in you. Inequality has an architecture and a geography and an atmosphere, and it's practice that is the problem. 
and the Aboriginal learner and the Aboriginal child, they don't generally get their education needs met from the Aboriginal school or the Aboriginal hospital. They go to the dominant hospital and the dominant school with predominantly non-Indigenous workforce. We need to close the gap in practice. Practice is where the problem is for me. And that's my research on culturally responsive pedagogies in making responsive practices. There are two historical moments in your life, one when you are born and the second when you find out why. You know why, that's why you're sitting here. That's why you are important to us. That's why you need to weave into the knowledge loom that was before you. The ancient, as well as the Aboriginal research standpoint, as well as the non-Indigenous archive. That's Professor Lester Irabina Rigney from the University of South Australia. You also heard from distinguished Professor Linda Tuiwe-Smith and Professor of Indigenous Health at Queensland University of Technology, Chelsea Wadigo. They were speaking at the Lowitcher International Indigenous Health Conference held earlier this year in Cairns, far north Queensland. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for more inspiring stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.